battling the relentlessly negative doom and gloom news media. It's the Nick Stenger Show. Coming to you live from the Stenger Family Office Headquarters, it's your host, Nick Stenger. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Nick Stenger Show. My name is Nick Stenger. We are the Stenger Family Office for the past 42 long years. You know it's been our mission to deliver both clarity and confidence to help secure your financial future. Episode 117, thank you for coming back each and every week. If you enjoy the show, go on Spotify, go on Apple, leave us a five-star review. We so appreciate it. Helps us get the show to more people. And I also will tell you, I think I said this last week, but we do officially have a date for our open house, and that's the ribbon-cutting ceremony and open house at our new headquarters in Naperville here at the corner of Deal in Washington, North Naperville. That is going to be July 27th from 4 to 8 p.m. Stop by, have some food, have some beverages, meet up, meet the entire team. Our families will be here. Come say hi to us. Meet baby Jack. Say hi to the wives and the spouses and the kids. going to be a great time, July 27th, 4 to 8 p.m. We'd love to see you for our open house and ribbon cutting ceremony. Okay, episode 117, Powell Kills the Optimism. That is the title of this week's article and show, what is really going on, what's happening on a Federal Reserve level. Well, yesterday, June 21st, Wednesday, Powell kind of spooked some of the optimistic investors. The market hasn't really reacted yet today on Thursday because I think uh, the market doesn't know what to think. Powell doesn't know what to think. Powell has no idea what he's doing. Um, it's not 100% his fault. It is partly his fault, but it's not 100% his fault. He was set up to fail by the structure that was created in 1913 by the Federal Reserve coming to existence. And every Federal Reserve chair that's gone before Powell has had a really tough time. Now, some of them manage it better than others. Powell uh, really is unsure of himself. He has managed it, in my estimation, very poorly. Part of the reason is he was late to the game in 2020, 2021. Now he's playing catch up. And his comments yesterday were that we are going to continue to be what's called hawkish, not dovish. Dovish is we're not going to raise rates. We're not going to do anything too extreme. Hawkish is the opposite of that. That means that we are going to continue to raise rates. This is a temporary pause. Now, maybe Powell is posturing. Maybe he is trying to give the market a head fake so we don't get ahead of ourselves, so we don't get overly excited. That's entirely possible. We've seen that happen from time to time. In the past, that the Fed's scare tactic sometimes does the job for them. He would love if that were the case. I don't think that's going to be the case for a variety of reasons. Number one being the fact that we have structural issues that are going to continue to drive up the cost of goods and services, increasing the long-term inflation number, maybe not to the level that it increased during COVID at the 6 or 7% zone, but you have to remember that CPI, the, the consumer price inflation number that everybody watches, is really not an accurate representation of how we live our day-to-day lives. Most of CPI is housing. Yes, housing is a big piece. Okay, Yes, energy, that's a big piece. And food costs are a big piece. But most of us don't buy a house every single year, for example. Most of us don't buy a car, transportation every single year. Most of us, though, go to the grocery store, we see the prices that I believe are permanently here to say 40% higher than they were back in 2020, 
that's not going away. That has permanently reduced the buying power. And so if your income, for example, has not gone up 40%, like the cost of food and energy, then you have a 40% reduction in your real income and your take-home income. That is the real risk. That's what's going on. So number one structural issue is we have got to fix the energy crisis. And it's not, I, I shouldn't really use the word crisis, but it could become a crisis if we don't get it together and uh, allow our U.S. oil companies to have the boom of oil that we've had for for, for the past five, five, six years now. And we have got to have energy independence. We have got to have control of our energy supply. If you don't have that, you don't have national security. Democrats, Republicans, everybody can unite behind that idea. Let's take it even a step further. Let's talk about housing. Housing is structurally underbuilt. I was talking to a developer this week, and we talked about regulation. Regulation that went into place during the housing crisis, 08 and 09, was overly restrictive on developers, and it reduced the amount of lending that developers could access to build new projects. That has caused developers to drop out. Some of them probably should have never been in the business to begin with, but it also has reduced supply. And so not only are we going to have, I think, increasing rents for the foreseeable future, but we are going to have really tough housing prices for a while. And like we talked about last episode, higher housing prices ultimately hurt the lower and middle class the worst. It also hurts the millennial generation, which in a lot of cases is buying a house for the first time. These are problems that cannot be fixed overnight just by raising or lowering the interest rate. That's not going to solve the problem. What has to happen is, first of all, we've got to get regulation out of the way to build some more housing, affordable housing. And then the second thing we have to do is we also need to get our fiscal house in order. We cannot continue to print and spend to the level we have because all it does is it reduces the value of the outstanding dollars in our economy, thereby setting up the value and the prices of assets. In an an inflationary environment, the people that benefit are indeed the richest 10, 5, 1%. That is true. There's no way around that. And unfortunately, what happens is the lower the middle class get left behind, the people that don't own assets get hurt the worst when the prices go up. This is obvious. This is just inflation 101. So maybe Powell knows this and he is just trying to send some scare tactics through the market so that people don't go overboard and end up into the excess that we had during COVID. Or maybe he really is serious about raising interest rates and he's going to push us, like I have said now for the past few months, maybe even the past year now, that rates could possibly top out around that 6% range. I doubt 7%, but maybe the 6% zone. It doesn't completely make it where the sky is falling. It doesn't end in an all-out Armageddon or an abyss or anything like that. But 6% rates completely change the asset allocation game. It changes where you take your risk. And that's exactly what happened in the early 2000s. There was a massive pivot in the S&P 500. Remember, we were coming off of the tech bubble, the tech crisis, the pop, 6% 6% interest rates going down to 5, 4, 3, all the way to the financial crisis, which created another bubble. This is the true issue behind the scenes. This is what needs to ultimately be solved. This is the idea that a centralized body like the Federal Reserve can plan, 
things out in advance. You just can't do it. Supply chains are way too complex. The economy is way too detailed and complex. And and in even making a pencil, there's a great essay called I Pencil, if you want to look it up, talking about how even making a pencil is such a complex process with all the different distributors and, and, and providers and raw materials and all the things that go into just a simple pencil. It is there's just no way on earth that one person or one group of 12 or 15 could plan out the entire U.S. economy. That's what really has to stop. We have got to get away from these whipsaws and in interest rates, these whipsaws in monetary policy. And really what the Fed is supposed to do, they've never done this, but what they're supposed to do is provide a ballast against the nuts policy on either side of the political aisle. They're supposed to stop the Republicans. They're supposed to stop the Democrats. They're supposed to say, if you want to do stuff, if you want to spend money, you have to raise taxes, you have to raise bonds. They're not supposed to go in and say, oh, you don't want to raise taxes. You don't want to raise bonds. We'll just print the money for you. They're supposed to be the backstop against that. They've been anything but a backstop. Now, this is a left and a right issue. It's not just one side of the political spectrum. It's both sides. They love this idea of modern monetary theory. They love the idea that they can come up with money out of thin air. It's based on a fantasy. It's called modern monetary theory. Like we've said before, it's not a good theory. It's not modern. It's, it's, it's a horrible way to run your economic model in a country because what happens is you de disincentivize work. I, I think that's really what, what ultimately comes of centralized money control. It, it essentially turns into communism at the end of the day. And then part of the reason for that is because people go to work, they work the same 40 hours or 50 hours a week, but that same amount of work gets them less and less and less because of inflation. You do that for long enough, you end up with a mutiny on your hands. You end up with anarchy. You got to be very careful at a federal government level that you need to have a, a, a stable monetary system. People were trying to do this with Bitcoin. They were trying to come in and they were they, they thought that Bitcoin would be the ballast against runaway print and spend and that there'd be a limited supply of the, the, the coins out there. And once you mined them all, it would solve all of our problems. And, and that's all there would ever be because you couldn't print more of them. And the government has shut, shut that down. Not completely. Of course, you can go out and buy Bitcoin still, but the idea that it's going to be the, the reserve currency is kind of a fantasy. What could happen, which I'm a little bit concerned about, is these reports of a digital dollar. And not the fact that they would change anything with their monetary policy with it necessarily, although they could. More importantly, what they could do is they could go after political enemies. Uh, they could simply turn off your bank account. You saw this in Canada. Um, that is a concern. And so the more and more you give centralized control over your money, that's what ultimately controls policies. And, and so what do you do with all this? And where do you go? Well, as an investor, I like to look at companies. I like to look at management teams, people who are much smarter than we are, and, and the best CEOs, the entrepreneurs, the people that are innovating, and see what they're doing. Number one, they're really not panicking. And if you read these reports from CEOs and management teams and you talk to them, and I've got a bunch of clients that we have on the ground floor level that let us know what's going on, they are not panicking. Now, they've got their concerns. They've got their worries, just like the rest of us. But 
it's not a reason for them to be so scared that they're not going to get out of bed in the morning, that, that they're not going to go to the office and, and, and put in a full day of work. It, it, that's just not how they operate. And, and so they are run by real people. These companies are, are run by management teams that go to work every day to work the problem. And sometimes they're wrong, but most of the time they're right if they're a good company and they've been around for a long time and they've managed conservatively and they've got a good balance sheet. They've got enough cash to get them through a storm. And so when you have done the basics, you've done those basic things as a company, you don't have to panic when there's some noise out there. Now, there is noise out there that the S&P will drop to 3,500, that GDP is going to fall out of bed, that the abyss is coming, that the world's coming to an end, that a depression's around the corner. I, I do think there's pain around the corner, but I do not believe when I talk to these companies, when I talk to these management teams, I do not believe that we are on the brink of total all-out collapse. And part of that is because earnings are still strong, customers are still doing well, and the, the clients are still doing well, the end consumer is doing well. At a certain point, the consumer will likely slow down. But again, that's not a reason to panic today. Remember, the market is going to be a forward-looking indicator of what's to come. That's how it always works. So anything that we think or the market thinks is going to happen a year from now or six months from now will be priced in today in anticipation of the bad news. By the time you react, it's way too late. And that's why we've told you, you just have to stay on your plan. Even though it gets hard sometimes, it gets really tough when you see the flying ticker tape nonstop across your screen on CNBC or Fox Business or Bloomberg or whatever show you watch. It can be very difficult to stay on the plan. But you have to because you just cannot react quick enough to these changes in market conditions. That's, that's how we've always run the portfolio for our clients. We've never held ourselves out to be market timers or traders or to know when to get in and get out and all the rest of it. Rather, we want to have you on a goals-based plan. And that goals-based plan does get very important because number two observation about companies and, and what are these management teams doing is they're looking at their IRRs, their internal rates of return, and, and then they look at the capital allocation decision. And that is important. And, and so, yeah, they're not panicking, but they are actively managing their companies like we're actively managing your portfolio through the due diligence and rebalance process. And so when you end up even like today at 5% rates, especially at 6% rates, certainly if we get over 6% rates, that does change it even more dramatically. But the capital allocation decision matters so much more as rates go up because no longer can we be comfortable with a 5% or even just like an accounting class. You learn that a positive IRR is a, is a good project to take on. That totally changes when you get into the world of finance because when you can get risk-free 5% or 6% on a treasury bond, relatively zero risk, as long as the treasuries don't default, then you've got to get much, much better on your, your project that you're going to do. And the project could be starting a new plant, uh, doing research and development, coming up with a new drug if you're a pharmaceutical company. Uh, it, the list goes on and on. Any capital project can become unwise when you get into that 5 6% zone. And so what happens is on a company level, especially with the small cap companies that have less buying power, less leverage, they have too much debt on their balance sheet, they cannot uh, uh, just overnight refinance and find new lines of credit like a big company might be able to or have enough cash on their balance sheet just to draw from cash. Small companies in particular get hurt by these rising rates and they have to really, really, really slow down 
on their growth plans. And so that's the part of the Federal Reserve that can cause stagflation is what it's called. Not only do you have rising prices, but then you, you cause stagnation and growth. And, and so instead of people going out and, and building and growing and hiring and all the rest of it, they slow things down to the point where they, they almost get scared of their own shadows and, and they just don't want to do anything at all. And I think that's actually probably the place that we're in with the small and the mid-cap companies. I think on the large-cap company level, these companies are very optimistic, positive, and they're all going to be pretty much fine. There's going to be some that aren't going to make it, but especially in the big tech space where there's tons of cash on the balance sheets, the big banking space, it's going to be okay. It's the small and mid-caps that I do get a little bit concerned about. That's why we've kept you out of them, and we've kept you so heavily weighted towards U.S. blue-chip large-cap companies, most of which now pay dividends or do stock buybacks. We're going to talk about that in one second. Are we going to stagflation? I think that's the, the, the question on the horizon. It's possible. And stagflation is a fancy way of just saying not a whole lot of anything happens for a while. And sometimes it can be 10 years. Sometimes it can be 15 years. Sometimes it can just be five years. But think about where we're at in this cycle. We peaked out on the S&P 500 index at 4,750 points roughly in 2020. Fast forward three years to today, June 22nd, 2023, and the S&P still is about 10% lower than that record all-time high three years ago. That's three years in what we've called the wilderness. It could be, in my opinion, another two to three on top of what we've already done until we're completely out of the woods. That's what happens during stagflation. It's not that the bottom falls out or that the world comes to an end, but it's just that not much of any growth happens for a while. And that's why people start to pivot towards places that they can get current income. They want to go to places where they can get dividends, where the company's reducing their outstanding shares. That's called buybacks. And they can actually increase earnings per share because of that. So these are the kinds of asset allocation decisions. As companies make these decisions and they, they pivot, we also just want to pivot in the portfolio as well. Three areas that I think are pretty much all you're going to hear about if you turn on CNBC, if you listen to portfolio managers out there, everybody's going to talk about big tech. And if you didn't have a weight in big tech for the past 10 years, you structurally underperformed the market. And we've always had a big tech weight. We've believed in the big tech companies and not just big tech, but just big companies in general. And that's because of the Matthew principle. And that's that's the Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule that, that 20% of the, the companies out there will ultimately do 80% of the growth or the return. That has held fast for years. And so I think if you've been out of big tech and now you're looking for an entry point, you realize that Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google are so structurally ingrained in our economy, I'm not saying they're all perfect or there's not issues and there shouldn't be regulation and all the rest of it, but just as far as how important they are to our day-to-day -day lives, now you're looking for a point to buy them and I think you could go very, very wrong paying the wrong price. There's a couple names that are very good buys right now. I won't say them on the podcast, uh, but but uh, reach out to us if you'd like to talk more one on one. I just don't. This podcast is not investment advice, so if you you're interested, we can put a proposal together for you. Reach out to us. But more importantly, I think the big risk is you could overpay for a big tech company and sit on basically no return for a while. So. 
do I want to go out and put 20% of your portfolio in big tech right now? Not necessarily. I'd rather have you diversified. And then some of the big tech that we bought in part of our rebalance and due diligence process at the end of last year was that we added to Facebook, we added to Microsoft, added to Google, added to Amazon. Those big tech companies are all up in the multi-double-digit range, so it, it may be time to take some profits and rebalance into some other segment of the market. Now, the second thing, if you read the article, is this thing called flight to safety. I would be still somewhat careful on the flight to safety trade. Remember, markets are forward-looking indicators. So when you think something bad's going to happen, by the time you buy it or react, unless you were super early on the call, uh, uh, chances are you're you're late and it, the, most of the returns already happened. That's what's gone on with these so-called safe stocks and safe sectors. And that would be consumer staples, for example, utilities, energy stocks, all great companies, a lot of really good names in the utilities world, a lot of great energy names, a lot of great consumer staples names. But again, you just have to be a little bit careful what you pay for their stock prices. When you overpay for a solid, let's just call it like a top 10 S&P 500 stock, usually we can get you out of the woods. It just takes a little bit of time. If you're buying a more obscure name, if you're buying something that really doesn't have the best earnings, it's not the highest quality, it's it's just something where people buy it because it's so-called safe. And, and uh, we saw this with regional banks, by the way. There was a massive wave of people buying regional banks mid last year saying, they, oh, this is a flight to safety, which I don't know how they could have possibly believed that, but they did. Sometimes you pay the wrong price for a stock like that. Maybe you even pay the wrong price for Pepsi stock, for example. It can take a long time to get out of the woods on those losses. So, again, it's not that you have 0% of your portfolio in that. It's not that you'd have nothing in the, the flight to safety. But you just got to be so careful that you're not overdoing it. And I've, I've had people come in with these portfolios where at the end of last year, their advisor got so bearish, so negative, and, and kept them out of the big tech. They kept them out of a balanced portfolio and just put them 100% into the safety, so-called safety, and it's been a disaster. So you know, their their returns negative six seven percent for the for 2023, while the market's up 10 or 15 percent. So that's the risk. You just don't want to overdo it and take these big bets in either direction. The last place, and this is really where we focus with all of our portfolios, but I would say certainly in our resilient America portfolio and our strategic value, is the dividend quality dividend growth stocks. And this is where you do the most of your capital allocation work. This is where we earn our money. It's not that there's any guarantees with what I'm about to say, but I will just go through the math of what we look for. We start with the screen of the S&P 500. So we take a look at the entire market. And sometimes we do pull in a couple of the mid-cap stocks that have sold off. So they used to be large cap, but they've, they've traded down 30 or 40%. And there's a buying opportunity. And because of that, they've actually become a mid-cap company. So we do look at that as well. And we start with all U.S. companies. What we want to do first is we want to screen out stuff that pays a dividend, but only pays a dividend because they have nothing else to do with the cash. And so you can run into this with telecom sometimes is uh, these some of these stocks will pay seven, eight, nine percent dividends. Well, the only reason they do that is because they don't have anything else to spend the money on. And that's not necessarily a good sign. And, and sometimes you can run into we call it zombie companies in that arena. So we keep you away from that. Then we want to look at their balance sheet look at their return on equity, ROE. We want to look at their return on assets, ROA. 
And we want to take a combination of all these metrics with dividend yield, buyback yield, and put together a portfolio with the best names, what we feel are the best names from each sector. And and so part of our process, if you ask our team this and and, and Bond and my, my business partner, Bond Roth, and, and our due diligence committee, our investment committee, we are very, very intent on not straying away too far from the broad index. That is so critical. And you see this from time to time where people, they, they think, oh, well, I know better than the market and, and uh, the market's only 5% energy, for example, I'm going to go 20%. Well, you got to have some rules. You have to have some math-based rules in place where you're not going to overdo it on a sector that isn't, your tracking area would be so radically off, so radically different than the broad market, you can really get into trouble. And you saw that in the late 90s with the tech bubble and the tech crash where there were advisors we were friends with who uh, had 30, 40% of their clients' net worth in tech, and and we only had maybe 10 or 12%. And it's not that, you know, the stocks that we had picked didn't have trouble. They, they certainly did, but it didn't have the impact on the portfolio like it would have if it was 40% of the portfolio. So you just have to be somewhat benchmarked to the index and, and have a good trading range. One of the things that we don't want to do as well is have too much concentration in one or two or three or four stocks. And, and so we typically cap things out. It's not that we'd never be over 8% on a company, but it's it's typical that we will take profits once a company reaches that 6 7 8% zone of the portfolio. And then we want to put that into the stuff that hasn't done quite as well. So that's how we run the process. And what else are we looking for? Well, we're looking for competitive advantage. We want to have companies that uh, Morningstar calls it a wide moat, where they have some protection over their IP. Maybe they even have some competitive advantages where they have contracts in place or it's just so hard to get into the business that it's, it's almost impossible to compete with them. That's the kind of companies we want to own. And then the other ones we want to, uh, the other factors that we want to look for is just the quality of management and, and what's their track record. How long have they been there? How much of the stock do they actually own themselves? And, and what's their insider trading look like? And these are all the factors that go into the, the, the decision-making process. At the end of the day, you're looking for companies in a 5 or 6% rate environment like we are today. You're looking for companies that at least we, th- we think have a probability of going up minimum the rate of inflation plus maybe you know another two or three percent on top of that it's not a guarantee but that's what we're looking for so we want to find a company where we think price appreciation will be six to ten percent a year for the next three to five years and then on top of it we may add a company in that has a dividend of two or three percent that has buybacks that add two or three percent to the return and so you're able to still target eight to thirteen percent per year in equity returns. Again, this is a target. This is not a guarantee. And, 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 and of course, we can have companies where we think they're going to return 10% a year and they return 0% for, for five years. And so that does happen. But when you buy a company, this is the process you have to go through or else you can end up with a lot of overpriced companies and get no return for a very long time. So that that's really what my concern is in this period. It's not that there's no return out there. In fact, I think there's a lot of 
undervalued companies that are a great value, a great buy, and you just have to look for them. It's not quite like it was five or six years ago where everything was undervalued and you could just put everything into the S&P and cross your fingers and it would pretty much work out. I think uh, uh, more of the security selection and, and being a little bit more of the due diligence and the rebalancing, that mindset is really going to make a difference over the long run. So yeah, we've sounded a little bit more bearish and I hope hopefully I didn't sound too bearish on today's episode and, and the past couple, but we're not bearish in the sense that we think Armageddon is right around the corner. So I just want to be clear about that. We are still long-run optimists. I just think we've got a little more choppiness ahead and a little bit more pain. And and so don't be surprised by that. And, and we're in the business here at the Stenger Family Office of setting expectations. And so I think your expectation just should be somewhat conservative. Don't be overly nervous or excitable. If you see the the, the market drop over the summer, it's not the end of the world. It's just part of the course of burning off this excess bad money monetary policy. So stay patient, stay invested, don't jump ship. And this, again, was episode 117. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review, share it, comment on it. We'll see you next week. <laughs>